Well, good morning. It is good to see you guys today. Uh, whether you are with us in one of our campuses today or whether you are joining us online, uh, we are grateful that you would take some time that we could gather together as God's people today. We are going to start a little different today. Um, I'm going to unpack uh, a little bit of the, of the story that we're going to look at together, and, and then uh, we're going to sing, and then we'll come back and we'll finish it up, all right? So here's what I want to admit to you first thing. I admit to you that when we normally gather together, my expectations are usually pretty high. They are. Um, I expect that people will be changed. Therefore, I expect that lives will be transformed. Um, I expect that somewhere within our time together, there will be some, some weeping under sin. But I also expect that there will be some celebrating over forgiveness. To be honest with you, if eternal life is better than, say, three touchdowns in the last seven minutes to win the Super Bowl, then I would expect the response to celebrating eternal life to be better. I would. But here's what I'm also going to admit. I'm going to admit that there are seasons when I start to wonder if my expectations are incorrect. And I'm just being honest with you, the reason I start to wonder is because sometimes I watch what happens when people gather together to worship God, but there is little response. But then like this week, we read from God's word. So this is God himself showing us what could and what should be. In weeks like this, I realize my expectations are incorrect because they're not high enough. So I want to show you what I mean before we dig in and we celebrate today. What we saw last week is that God had sent Nehemiah to rebuild some city walls. The Jerusalem, city of Jerusalem was destroyed. God sends Nehemiah to rebuild those walls. Well, he also sent a guy by the name of Ezra to rebuild the temple. But by Nehemiah chapter 8, now it's about God rebuilding his people. Let me show you a few things. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, here's how it reads. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. Now, what's the book of the law? The book of the law of Moses was the, is the first five books of the Bible. They are God's covenant, his promise with his people. So here's what I want us to see today. When God builds his people, he builds them as a people of his word. He always does. And I want you to notice in this story today that this is, this is not just about me and my Bible and a quiet time. No, we learn first of all 
that God, people of God, God's word, approach it collectively. People of God's word approach it collectively. It says in this story that men were present, women were present, there were children were present, people who could understand. There were tens and tens of thousands of people gathered, brought back together under God's word. And I got to tell you, that feels a little bit like what we're walking through right now. A season of our lives where we have been scattered. <laughs> For a little while, we, we, we were not together. But what's happening now? We start to move back together. And when we come together, we always come together under God's word. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand, and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So people of God's word not only approach it collectively, but people of God's word also approach it attentively. A recent study revealed the fact that the average human attention span, anybody want to guess? The average human attention span, let me put it this way, back in the year 2000, it was 12 seconds. You know what it is now? Eight. The average human attention span today is eight seconds. Just to put it in perspective, scientists believe that the attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds. True story. We live in a day where the hottest commodity of our culture is attention, and everybody's fighting for it. It says in our story today that they listened from daybreak, which had been about 6 a.m., till noon. Right now you're going, Jeff, sometimes it feels like you talk about the Bible for that long, right? 6 a.m. till noon. And what I love about this story is it says very clearly in verse 1, the people asked for that. They actually come to Ezra and say, hey, will you read the book of the law to us? I'm going to admit to you, part of what grieves me sometimes is how often it feels like we spend so much time begging people, come on, uh, attend a gathering together where you can celebrate with God's people. Come on, will, will, you, will you join us for a Bible study where you can grow in God's word? Come on, will you, will you be a part of a life team where you can walk out this faith together? My question is, what is the price that you are paying for where you are choosing to pay attention. People of God's word approach it attentively. Let me give you another one. Verse five. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. I, I would call this people of God's word, approach it reverently. That's what they're doing when they stand. 
Now, in that particular case, it was just an outward expression of what they felt on the inside. We get this even in our culture. If a, if a high-ranking military official walks into a room, people stand. We get that. This book that we call our Bible, that we, we get to open and read, when we, you understand it isn't just printed words. It is words breathed by God himself. And so the real question is, does my life stand up when I read God's word? Does my life stand up in honor of God's word? Is there a willingness for me to submit to what God says is right and wrong? Whatever he says, does it show in my life or his priorities, my priorities? Is his word the ultimate authority in my life? People of God's word approach it reverently. One more before we sing. Verse 6. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen. Amen. And then they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I described this one that people of God's word approach it responsively. Sometimes with their hands held high, sometimes with their faces to the ground. Now, come on, I understand that we have different personalities, introverts, extroverts. We got different temperaments. We've got, right, some people are more emotional than other people. But when somebody says to me regarding their worship to God, well, that's just not who I am. What I want to shout back is, you have missed the question of worship. Because the question of worship is not about who I am. The question of worship is about who God is. And you know what I have noticed in just about all people? When it comes to a, a sporting event, when something fantastic happens, when it, when it comes to a, an arts performance, a, a, something beautiful that takes place, what I have noticed is that pretty much everybody that has breath has a way of putting their hands together and they clap and they tend to shout and they tend to sing. There's something about when you are moved by greatness, every person on the planet moves. Anybody watching baseball? Anybody watching baseball? Come on, you can admit it. Anybody watching baseball? Finally a little bit of baseball back. Isn't it weird? Isn't it kind of weird? You know when it's not weird? Close your eyes. Just close your eyes when you're watching the game, which means you're not actually watching it, you're just listening to it. But if you've got your eyes open watching baseball right now, it's weird. Somebody want to tell us why it's weird? Why is it so weird? There's nobody in the stands. Empty stadiums. But for like 40 bucks, you can buy a cardboard cutout of yourself that they will put in a seat in the stadium so that when the cameras pan, right, they can see you seated there. And 
they pipe in the noise. So if you close your eyes, you almost can't tell, but when you're watching it, it's like, there's cardboard people. It's cardboard. Somebody gets a hit. That's what it looks like. Somebody gets a hit and they push the button and there's a little bit of cheering. Somebody hits a home run, they push a different button and there's more cheering. I saw a game the other night where the pitcher throws to first base in order to hold a runner on. Well, what normally happens to the visiting team who does that? They boo. They pushed a button and booing happened. It's like, this is good. But here's what I'm thinking. We got the best baseball players in the world. And there's no response happening in those stadiums, nothing real. And my question is, I wonder if sometimes that's how it feels to God. When people who gather to celebrate the one that we call the greatest in all the world, but they don't sing, They never shout. They never clap at his greatness. They can just look like cardboard cutouts. I want to challenge us today before we lift our voices to him in just a minute to pray. Last week, we talked about prayer. This week, we're talking about God's word. And what I know to be the case is if you want to know what to pray for, check out God's word. That tells us what we should pray for. Therefore, today, what we know we can pray for is what God desires from his people who when they approach him collectively, so God, will you bring your people back together in a safe way. Part of that means, God, we continue to pray that this whole thing could be be solved and this whole thing could, could, could be clear and, God, that God's people could begin to gather again. But I don't mean just gather in this room. I mean that even now, some people who are watching online who need to be gathering in some life teams, need to be gathering in some groups of people where together you can walk out what this faith walk really means. We can pray that we can be attentive. And yeah, we can pray that we can be attentive in these moments together. God, give me the focus of more than a goldfish, right? God, give me some focus so I can hear what you want to say to me today. But I'm also talking about, God, give me focus in my life as I worship you. God, give me a reverence for your word starting today. That what I'm hearing, I understand is God breathed from his word. And then God, will you make us responsive? And whatever holds us back, whether it's our pride, it's our fear, God, on this day, may the greatness of who you are cause your people to praise you. So let's pray before we sing, all right? I'm gonna invite you, if you, you're, 
you know, if you, where you're seated, I, I would invite you that if you're comfortable getting on your knees, you can, you're welcome to get on your knees. When we get on our knees, it's just this outward picture of a humility that says, God, I, I'm dependent on you and I want you. So I want to encourage us just to bow together. And I'm going to give you a few moments to just ask of him what you've heard we can ask for. And then I'll pray for us and then we will praise. God, today, may you give us such a view of who you are. God, may our perspective today of how you love us be moved to such a degree that our hearts and therefore our voices, our hands, our lives, God cannot contain the response that we desire to give to you today. There was a place in your word, Jesus, where you declare that if the people didn't praise, the rocks would cry out. And it is the reminder for us that everything that you have made is to declare your praise. Everything that you have made is to declare your greatness. And yet you have given us a privilege of doing so that is unlike anything else that you have created. So God, on this day, as we, your people, have gathered in this room and other rooms, God, some who are in their homes, God, different places, even across the world, God, on this day, would you join our hearts collectively and would you give us a heart that overflows with a joy, with a love, God, of seeing who you are on this day? Will you grow our heart in response to you? We love you, but it's because you first loved us. Now, we say we love you. In the name of Jesus, I pray it. Amen. So we're just going to finish up this story. What we've seen so far is that God desires of people to approach him collectively, attentively, reverently, and responsibly. But what's left in the story 
I think helps us understand why. So let's just pick it up. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 7. The Levites. And if you're following along in your Bible, you now see a big list of names that I have chosen not to entertain you with mispronouncing them all. So we're just going to leave it as the Levites. And here's what they did. Instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. The people of God's word approach it understandingly. We understand it. Do you ever remember a time in your life where the same information can be explained in different ways depending on the person that you're listening to? Do you ever remember a time in your life when that's worse than it is now? It's like, it's just hard to understand. We get some information, but we don't even know what to do with it because it depends on who's interpreting the information. Now, I'm going to tell you, there's going to be an accounting one day for those in authority who purposefully mislead those that they lead. Can I tell you that? But I also need to tell you that there's going to be a greater accounting one day for those who use God's word to mislead others. Therefore, this issue of understanding is a big, big deal when it comes to God's word. So I just want to give you a few, actually three, we're going to call them guardrails, all right? Just something for you to start to hang on to today. One of the things that I want to see us do moving into the future is to be able to give you more of the principles of how do you actually take God's word and know that you're accurately handling it. So I'm going to call these guardrails. They're not even, on the, not even going to be on the screen, so I'd encourage you to jot them down, but here's how they go. Go broad, go deep, and go together. Go broad, go deep, and go together. So when you're handling God's word, first go broad. What I mean is if you want to understand what Nehemiah chapter 8 is saying, it's helpful to back up to some chapters before it and helpful to take a look at some chapters after it. Sometimes it even means you got to do a little digging to find out what's this book of Nehemiah all about. You can't just pick out one little section and always expect to be able to understand what is being said there and why. You go broad. It's one of the reasons right now with us reading through the entire story of God this year. If you don't know that, we started in January reading through the entire Bible. The advantage to that is when you get to a section, you know what's come before it. You've already read it. It helps to broaden that perspective. But you also need to go deep. So you go broad, read more around it, but also go deep. And what I mean by that is when you're looking at a text, you're looking at a phrase, think about every word. The Lord is my shepherd. We just roll through that. But come on, the 
Lord is my shepherd. In other words, there are none others, right? He is the Lord. The, the Lord is my shepherd. He, he's the one who is in charge. He is the one who is king. He is the one my heart submits to. The Lord is right now. I mean, right now, he's not I was, he is I am. He, he is my shepherd right now. The Lord is my shepherd, right? Not, not just something out there, but personal. He is with me. You understand what I'm saying? Take, a, take the phrase and you go deep. You begin to, to think through each word. So you go broad and then you go deep, but you also go together. And it is so much the value of structures like what we have as life teams where people meet together and they talk about God's word. It keeps any of us from taking off on these crazy rabbit trails or tangents of no. It helps us together to hold each other to understand here's what God's word really says. Because biblically, understanding is more than just hearing it. It's more than just reading it. It's even beyond just the mental comprehension of it. It is correctly applying this truth that God is breathing into my life. These people begin to understand. They understand what's happening around them. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 9. It says, then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Hmm. They're weeping. Here's the way I'm going to describe this, this principle. People of God's word approach it humbly. Humbly. It says that Nehemiah, Ezra, all these Levites who were the teachers, they're, they're, they're trying to calm the people down because all the people are weeping. Why are they weeping? And I'm telling you, there is a humility factor that is happening when this group of people gather where they are hearing what God is saying, and they are convicted of where they don't match the heart of God. They are convicted of their wrong. In other words, as God's word is being read, they are allowing God's word to read them. And they're not standing in judgment of God's word. They realize that God's word is, is the judgment against them. And, and they realize where they're wrong. And what follows is grief and remorse and conviction. Have you ever been in a gathering of God's people where there was weeping over the conviction of sin? You ever been in that kind of meeting? Been in a few of those. I'm saying... We should pray for more. We should pray that God gives us more of those moments with him where our heart is so open to what he is saying 
that within that gathering, there is a conviction that takes place because we so want to be right with him. Interesting fact. A lot of people don't realize this when they read Nehemiah chapter 8. This time in Israel's history was what I'm going to call a reformation of sorts. It was a, a reformation of people coming back to the book of the law. A, a people coming back to living in tune in the, the covenant, the promise that God had made with, with his people. This time period would later be called, and when you, when you read biblical history, you, you'll hear it called the second temple period of Judaism. I know that fascinates you, but here's the point. If you want to understand the zeal, the passion, the drive of guys like the Apostle Paul, right? Before he was Paul, his name was what? Saul. And we're told that he persecuted the church, right? He, 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 was, he was persecuting the church, and he's just this driven, unstoppable man. If, if you want to know where does that zeal and where does that passion, where does that drive come from, he was born and bred out of the movement that happened long before him, started in Nehemiah chapter 8. It is a movement that we now know them as Pharisees. The Pharisees began out of this reformation in Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm telling you, the Pharisees were serious about the law of God. They, they learned it collectively. That they gave it all their attention. They submitted to it reverently. I mean, these are guys that they let their lives be sifted by the word of God. They vetted themselves through it. But here's what I want us to understand. 500 years after Nehemiah chapter 8, 500 years later, we read the picture of the Pharisees in the New Testament when Jesus comes along, and they're the villains, aren't they? They're like the villains of the New Testament because almost everything Jesus did, Pharisees pushed back on, even to the point that they thought Jesus was a threat to knowing God. Hmm. Fast forward in history to the 1500s. It was a man who came along by the name of Martin Luther who began to notice the shambles of faith within the church. And what God did through Martin Luther is he brought him back to the book. He brought him back to God's word. And as a result, you can read the, the, the story of history. There were, it was called the 95 Thesis, which, which Luther nailed to the Wittenberg Castle Church in Germany. It, it represented this course of correction for God's people. What he did became the seeds which the church in the 16th century would take hold of and a reformation would happen again where people would come back to God, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Fast forward 
500 years into the future. And here we are. And there's just a little part of me that wonders if what happened to the Pharisees that started in Nehemiah chapter 8, but 500 years later, they couldn't even recognize who Jesus was. Part of me wonders if a great reformation 500 years ago would now bring many to the place of, if Jesus actually showed up in flesh and blood today, would the people who call themselves the people of God actually recognize him? Or would we, like the Pharisees, dismiss him? How could that happen? Like, how could that happen with the Pharisees? Well, a part of how we know it happened, Jesus actually addresses. Because Jesus tells us in John chapter 5, he addresses them this way. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And so in other words, these, they, they are people of the book. They study, right, God's word. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But he says, those scriptures bear witness to me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you have life. Here's what happened with the Pharisees. What happened with the Pharisees is so easy for us to do today. They read the Bible, and their conclusion from the Bible was here are things that I need to do to earn my way to God. And not only did they make a list of what was in God's word, but the Pharisees started adding their own list. They read the Bible and said, here is where we find eternal life. Let's figure out how we can earn our way to God. And what Jesus says to them very clearly is what we got to make sure we take hold of. This book that we call the Bible isn't so much about showing how we get to God. It is declaring how God has gotten to us. When God himself put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood and then laid down his life for us that we could find life in him. To miss that is to miss Jesus, which leads us to the very last piece that I want you to see today. But for me, this is the piece that changes everything. Verse 10. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. <laughs> kind of an interesting declaration. And I want you to send some of those to those who have nothing prepared. So not only do I want you to celebrate this way, but I want you to give of what you have so that others can celebrate this way. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because remember, they're all grieving, they're weeping, they're mourning. Do not grieve, and here's our phrase, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
For those of you who grew up in church, right, that, that's hitting your head right now. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Remember learning that in Bible school or wherever you learned it? The, the joy of the Lord is my strength. What does that mean? The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Verse 12. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. What's happening here? They're learning that people of God's word approach it joyfully. Okay, but what, is, what does that mean here? What is going on in this story? What's our first guardrail? Go what? Broad. So let's go broad. Bigger than the story of Nehemiah, this starts right with God who chose a man by the name of Abraham. And he said, Abraham, you're going to be the, the father of a family who's going to possess a special land and you're going to have a, a special relationship with God. And even when Abraham's descendants became slaves in Egypt, God was faithful to his promise. God rescued them. This, this covenant and this beautiful picture starts to take place where God is painted in a relationship with his people like a husband and a bride. It's like a marriage. It's like there's this oneness, there's this closeness that God says, I want to have with you. Except we got a problem. Mm. And the problem is the rejecting the good husband for worthless lovers problem. Because that's what kept happening with the people. They kept turning from God, the one who was faithful to them, to, to, to other lovers. They would give their heart to other things. And after literally hundreds of years, hundreds of years of God's mercy and patience and warning and pleading, God allowed his people to be taken away. And that's part of what we're reading in the context of the book of Nehemiah people who are captive. They've been taken captive by an enemy. But now in Nehemiah, they're coming back. But, but, but the question is, who are they? Because when they're, when they're taken from their land, who are they if they're not in the land that God gave them? And, and how do they relate to this God now? Do they even have a special relationship with God anymore? It is the picture of the greatest marriage ever that falls to pieces because of adultery. That's the broad picture. And now they're back in Jerusalem, but the question in their hearts is still their identity. It is still a question of does this covenant remain? But what it just said was that now they understood. And here's what they understood. The reason that those walls were broken of us and the reason the temple had been destroyed 
because of us. The reason Jerusalem was in shambles was because of us. And they understand that this broken relationship with God is because of them. And so what is happening on this day in Nehemiah chapter 8 is what I would equate to a renewal of vows. You ever seen that happen with people who are married? I've seen people do it. Yeah, you know, a year or two after they've been married, sometimes I see people do it, you know, on the, the big round numbers of, right, 20 years or 50 years or however long. People will renew their vows. That's the picture of what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 8. And so you got God's people all dressed up, beautiful dress, but feeling crushed by the weight of the truth that they have been unfaithful to God. They're standing at this ceremony, but feeling the shame of how they have sinned against him. That's why they weep. That's why they grieve. That's why they mourn. And Nehemiah steps forward. And he says, stop. I want you to look at the groom. I want you to look at God. Because what God is saying to you at this renewal of vows is he's saying, you know what? I'm committed to you. I intend to keep on keeping my promise. My arms are reached out to you. I want you to be mine. And that love on that day began to radiate a joy among the people. Nehemiah is saying, this is not the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in Scripture is a judgment day. It is an accounting day. That's the day where you will answer for right all that has been done against him. He says, this is not the day of the Lord. This is a day holy to the Lord. This is a day where you are set apart to be with him. And, and therefore, there's no more mourning. There's no more sorrow. I want you to eat and drink, and I want you to celebrate. Because the groom delights in you. And oh, what we celebrate when we come together in a moment like this is that centuries later, centuries later, that groom would stand in the same city of Jerusalem and the people to which he came to love would do what? They would reject him. They would rebel against him. But this time, he didn't send this, them away. This time, he was willing to be the one who would be separated in relationship to the Father. And on this day, he would stretch out his arms. But it was in order for him to take their place. That's what we celebrate when we come together. That's why we don't act like cardboard cutouts. It's because this has changed everything for us. Y'all, it's so easy sometimes for us to pick up God's law and we treat it like an Apple terms of service, right? You get a new phone, you get a new, and you roll through the terms of service and you check a box. I'm telling you, you need to start reading God's law more like 
It's more like vows. Vows that God has made to you. And right now, if you will look at him, his face is fixed on you. And his eyes shine toward you. His cheeks, I imagine them hurting because he smiled for so long. It's what happens at wedding vows, right? And he holds out his hands expectantly. And listen to what I'm about to tell you. The warmth of love that he actually feels for you radiates joy. And he's saying, I'm still committed. And my promises I intend to keep because I love you. That is the joy that gives me strength. That is the joy that brings strength in my life. On that day long ago, God declared through his law and through his leaders that he loved and he delighted his people. He was fully aware of all they had done, but his commitment to them was steadfast. Listen to me. God is fully aware of all that you have done. But when you humble your heart toward him, the Bible calls it repentance when I turn from my sin back to him. He knows everything that you've done, but his commitment to you is steadfast. And there will never be any shaming with God. No, I told you so. No, let's rehash what you put me through. No, with God. With God, there is joy. And out of that joy, we love. My question to you today is do you understand and will you love him? God, I thank you for truth today. A truth that sometimes we find so hard to believe that at times it turns us into Pharisees that we read your word and we start to think through, God, how many, how many things can we do to earn, God, a love that we know we have broken. God, I thank you for days like today where you call us back to a picture. God, a desire that you have with your people today, wherever we may be, that we can look into your eyes and see one who loves us despite all that we've done and knowing all that we've done. 
And God, that, it, that it's not just a, a, a grit your teeth kind of thing that, that hopefully it's better this time. God, with you, there is a love and a joy that is real, that is warm. God, I pray that your people might know that with you. That out of it, our lives might live strong. Your joy, our strength, because your grace, your mercy, your love is our hope. So God, today we give us eyes that can see and give us faith to turn and to trust you. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray it.